Well, we're going to jump into God's Word uh, today, and as we open up the New Testament, uh, there are what we would call four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we start this new year, we're going to be resuming our study of John's Gospel, beginning in John chapter 5. In the, in the fall, we went through all four of those first chapters, and we kind of tore them apart pretty much verse by verse, and we're going to pick back up on that here in this new year in John chapter 5. But before we jump into the text, I want to just highlight a few things about this, the author of this book, the Apostle John, because as we get to know John, it then helps us get to know Jesus. So John and his brother were fishermen. They were part of a family business along with their father, Zebedee. Their mother's name was Salome. They are actually relatives, blood relatives of Jesus. And Jesus liked James and John a lot. They were very passionate guys. And in fact, he gave them the collective nickname of the Sons of Thunder. And, uh, you know, when, when you get to start to know someone, you're doing life with someone, you form a relationship, that's when nicknames come about, right? There's, there's something about that person that just sticks out to you, and, and you, you know, you stop calling them just whatever, Dave, you call them something else, and, and you come up with a nickname. And that's what Jesus did for these two guys. Again, they're relatives, they're close friends. They got to have some experiences with Jesus that a lot of the other disciples did not get to have. They were among this inner circle, this select group that went up on something we would call the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Peter, James, and John got to go to a deeper place of prayer with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. As Jesus was dying on the cross, one of the most tender moments in all of the Bible, Jesus is hanging there on the cross. He looks down. He sees his mother, Mary. He sees this guy whose writings we're reading today, John, and he, he leaves Mary into John's care. That's how much he knows John. That's how much he trusts John. That's how much he loves John. Uh, John, the author of this book, was one of the first ones to the empty tomb. And again, I just highlight these things because I want us to know as we read this book, John knows his topic, his subject, Jesus, very, very well. So today we'll start in John chapter 5. And it's going to be a little bit for, it's going to be a little bit hard for us to imagine, but God gave us the, the gift of imagination. So let's employ the gift of imagination. And here in the middle of this snowstorm, could we just imagine all of us sitting around a big Olympic-sized swimming pool today? Can you picture that? And it's hot out. And it's so hot that there are some porches that kind of give you some areas of shade that you can get under and get out from under the sun. That's, that's how warm it is out, all right? That's kind of the setting of where we're going. Now, when we picture that, we're probably picturing a vacation or we're probably picturing an, picturing an anniversary trip or something like that. But the, 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 the setting of our text today is there at the pool, but it's an entirely different set of circumstances. And in this set of circumstances, we are going to see the mercy and the compassion of our good God come to life in, in a man's life. Let's go to John chapter 5 in verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. So as we began studying this book in the fall, we found out that there were major feasts 
in the Jewish calendar. And if you were a, you know, an able-bodied uh, Jewish male, you were required to go to Jerusalem for at least one of these feasts per year. And we have record of Jesus going to Jerusalem to celebrate or, or recognize a feast over and over and over again. And so he goes up there, which was his custom, and there's an opening there called the Sheep Gate. This is where they would bring the animals in who were going to be sacrificed in the temple. And so Jesus comes in through there, and there's this large pool at this place of Bethesda. The word Bethesda literally means house of mercy. Everybody say house of mercy. House of mercy. We're going to see God's mercy in action here today. And so he's got this large pool. He's at the house of mercy, and it's got five decks situated around him. And it, it, it's filled with people that we begin to see a description of them in verse 3. It, look, it says this, In these, in these porches or these decks, lay a great multitude of sick people. They're blind, they're lame, they're paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? So our text takes us to this really, really interesting encounter between Jesus and this man who has been lame for many, many years at this pool at the house of mercy. Now, there's a great multitude of sick people there, and they are all hoping for a miracle. And this is an interesting story for many reasons, but one of the reasons that I find it so interesting is, is that we don't actually have any testimonies of anyone being healed at this pool. Okay, they're all gathered around there, they're all hoping, they're all waiting for a miracle, but we, we're not reading anywhere else in the story that, oh yeah, this person got healed of that, and this person got healed of that, and, and like, you know, it's just healings happening all the time. We actually don't have any evidence of, of anyone being healed at this pool. And in fact, in some Bible translations, you might have been reading along with me today, and when you got to verse 3, you were saying, hey, Preacher, your Bible doesn't line up with my Bible. Because in some translations, part of verse 3 and in the entirety of verse 4 is not even in there. It's not even in there. And, and it's, it, it's not in there because it wasn't included in the original manuscripts. And some folks might say, there, see there, you can't trust the Bible. Men just stick the words in there. And I would reply, no, this is proof of how much you can trust the Bible because as it was being copied, there were scribes who were copying it and they kept going back to the original manuscript and confirming that what they were copying was word for word. And if there was something added along the way, they would not include it. So more than likely, this might have been the little part here, verse 3 and 4, might have been a part of somebody's kind of footnote, something that somebody wrote over here in the margin. So in some Bibles, there's, it's simply not there because those who copied it wanted to be true to the text. Now, as I have studied this passage, just going to give you my opinion on it today, I don't think this was really a place of magical healing. I don't, I don't think it was. I think it was more of, of a legend. That's what I think it was. Well, the pool itself is real. 
Archaeologists began uncovering this pool in the 1800s and, and even up until the 1950s. They were still digging around there. Archaeology has confirmed the word of God that, yeah, this pool was there. And they discovered the porches and all that sort of stuff. But there's no real evidence of miracles. And today we're introduced to a guy who's been waiting on a miracle for 38 years. That's a long time to wait on anything. Can you say amen? So look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? When, I remember as a young believer first reading this story, and to be honest with you, I'm reading this story. I'm picturing this guy. He's laying there 38 years. Jesus comes along, the miracle worker, and looks at him and says, hey, hey, do you want to be made well? At first glance, this feels like Jesus is being a little insensitive. You're like a doctor walking into a guy's room and who's been suffering for 38 years. Say, hey, Bill, do you really want to get healed? <laughs> Bill, do you really want to get better? I mean, I'd be looking for a new doctor. It seems like at first glance that Jesus may be being a little insensitive to this guy's position. He's looking into the eyes of this suffering man laying beside this pool with hundreds of other suffering people. He says, do you want to be made well? Now, let's just remember this. When God asks us a question, it's never because he doesn't know the answer. <laughs> right? He doesn't ask us questions so he can learn something. God never asks us questions so he can learn something. God asks us questions so we can learn something. I call them locator questions. Remember when Adam sinned in the garden and God came down? He said, Adam, where art thou? It wasn't because the God of the universe who created Adam out of some dirt couldn't find Adam. If God wanted to find Adam, he's going to find Adam. God wanted Adam to see Adam's condition. So he asked him this locator question like, Adam, where are you in relationship to me And I believe that's the kind of thing that he's asking this guy when he says, hey, bro, do you want to be made well? Now, you would think after 38 years of being in this condition, the man would have a very simple answer. What do you think this answer would be? Yes. <laughs> like a resounding yes, like a shout it out. Yes. But that's, that's not what he says. Look, look at verse 7. It says the sick man answered and said, sir. I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now, this is just sad. <laughs> and this is another reason that the idea of stirred waters and miracles, I, I believe, is a legend. Because it seems cruel to make suffering people race one another to get into magical waters. Doesn't that seem cruel? Like, it just goes against the character of God. I just can't see God saying, okay, folks, step right up. There's only one miracle available today, and the first one in the pool gets it. Everybody else, too bad. I'm not trying to be funny, but as I have surveyed the Scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament, it just doesn't seem like that lines up with the character and nature of our good God. And in fact, Jesus doesn't say to the man, okay, bro, I'll sit here with you a while. And as soon as we see that water start moving, I'll help you into the pool. If that was the method that God was using to heal people and touch people, it seems like Jesus would have, you know, jumped on the bandwagon and said, okay, I'll help you into the pool. But he doesn't. Instead, look at what Jesus says in verse 8. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Y'all, this guy's been waiting for 38 years with his eyes fixed on some water. Occasionally, he's probably looking, you know, roaming around to and fro, looking for someone to help him get into the pool during that magical moment that the waters are moving. For 38 years, he's had his eyes fixed on the wrong thing. And the moment that he has an encounter with the living water, Jesus Christ, then he is healed. And I just wonder, as we kick off this new year, how often do you and I fix our eyes on the wrong things? How often do we believe that maybe people or money or a substance or a job or someone's approval is the magical key to our healing when all along what we really need is Jesus? There's an old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. We need to be careful where we fix our eyes because too many of us, me included, are looking for things that cannot deliver what we need. Got our eyes in the wrong place spot. When he takes his eyes off of those waters, when he takes his eyes off of the myth or the legend, if that's what's going on, he puts his eyes on Jesus. He's healed. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now this is just Sad again. Instead of rejoicing that the guy got healed, the religious people are upset that he got healed on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine that? Can you you imagine seeing a guy who has been lame for 38 years, now he's up, he's walking around, you would think that they would be rejoicing. You would think that they would be happy with this guy, but that is the deception of religion. Religion can make a rule more important than a person. We've always got to be careful. And these these were probably kind of self-righteous, legalistic religious folks. And right there in their midst, Jesus is walking through. He sets this guy free from whatever this disease or condition was. And they can't even rejoice in the miracle. They're actually angry about it. Verse 13. But the one who was healed did not know who it was. He He didn't really know who Jesus was, for Jesus had withdrawn. Jesus didn't bring, you know, attention to himself. He wasn't trying to make a scene here. He wasn't trying to memorialize this healing at this pool. Jesus just, he just withdraws. There's a multitude in that place. Now watch what happens in verse 14. It says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. We need, to, we need to talk about this a little bit. Um, this is absolutely amazing to me because as far as I know, there is no other instance in the Bible where Jesus healed someone and then went back later to deliver a PS. <laughs> then went back later and said, oh, excuse me, hey, hey, w- one more thing I need to tell you. There might, I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm just saying as far as I know, I don't know of any other instance that this ever happened, that Jesus gave someone a miracle and then went and found them a second time and said, hey, I just, I just need to tell you this. Now that you're well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. We've got we to unpack this a little bit because from this story, 
some folks have taken this text and they have built an entire doctrine or teaching around it. And they would say something like this, that all sickness is the result of sin. Therefore, if you're sick, you must be living in sin. Can I just say this morning, that is an awful doctrine and an awful application of this story. No one should look at this story and take a wide brush and and use it to say that, that all sickness is a result of sin because it's just not. There are many, many reasons for sickness. Some we understand and some is a mystery. Some we just don't know. But sin is not the cause of all sickness. I don't know if you know this or not, but I've been around the church a long time. And not just our church, but other churches. And and so much pain has been inflicted upon people who are already hurting because of this false doctrine. And if somewhere along the way in your spiritual journey you've been taught that all suffering is because of sin in someone's life... Please, I beg of you, allow God to renew your mind and change the way you see suffering. Because suffering touches all of our lives. And from time to time, some of the most righteous people on this planet have experienced the most suffering. Suffering is just a part of our human experience. And you know what suffering does? Suffering makes us long for our eternal homes where God will wipe away every tear. Is anybody looking forward to heaven? (laughs) I am. I am. So please, please don't look at someone who's going through something and go, because that's what religion does. Religion will will go, oh, I wonder what she did. I I wonder what he did to go through this. That bad thing happened to that family. I, I, I wonder what they did. No, that is an ugly, awful doctrine, okay? I just want to be, just want to be clear about that. We cannot look at all suffering and say it, it's a result of somebody's choice. However, in this text, in this story, there does seem to be some self-inflicted suffering in this guy's life. We can look back to the way Jesus said, hey, do you want to be made well? And now we can look to this warning in the temple where he says, hey, sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. And I think it's fair to conclude that that some of what this guy was dealing with was self-inflicted. Now, it's about to get really heavy in here for a couple of moments, okay? Everybody look at me and smile. I'm not talking about you, okay? I'm just going to share a few experiences, but it's not about you. Just just say that. Say it's not about me. Just go ahead and say it. Okay, I'm just going to say it. All right. I'm going to share a few experiences of self-inflicted suffering. Okay? So, um, one time in our first church, um, it it was a small church, and you could hear everything that was going on. And so after the sermon, the pastor would always say, you know, would anyone need prayer? And, and so people would come to the front and they would receive prayer. And so he would ask, you know, well, what are you praying for? And there was a dear lady, sweet lady, lover, but uh, she was trying to quit smoking. And so she would come up and she would say, hey, would you pray for me that God would deliver me from these cigarettes? And so he would pray passionately over her. 
And uh, she would walk out, and the next week, uh, same thing. She'd come up for prayer again. Would you pray for me that God would deliver me from these cigarettes? And so he would pray. And so this went on for about six weeks. And, and finally, uh, finally, my pastor at the time, he, he looked at her, and he kind of paused. He said, listen, he said, I want you to pray a prayer with me. And she said, okay. He said, I want you to repeat after me as I pray. And she said, okay, I'll do it. And so he said, uh, dear Jesus, she said, dear Jesus, please deliver me from these cigarettes. She says, please deliver me from these cigarettes. And he goes on and he said, and if I ever pick them up again. And she said, and if I ever pick them up again. And he said, Lord, make me so sick. And she looked up at him like, what you talking about, Willis? Like, I ain't praying that. <laughs> What was happening was by just continually coming and coming and coming, but no change, she was actually belittling the power of God. Because what it looked like to everybody else in the church was, hey, God's not strong enough to deliver her from these cigarettes. But the truth was, and I said it's going to be heavy in here, the truth was she didn't want to let him go. Now, I'm not condemning anyone in here who smokes cigarettes. We all got our issues. I got Twinkie, you got cigarettes. <laughs> I got a little Debbie, you got a camel. I don't know. But there was another guy. There was another guy who was suffering financially. And regularly, he would come to the church and he would say, Hey, I can't pay this. I can't pay that. Can you help me out? Can you help me out? And we would help him out and we would help him out. But after someone begins to ask for help so many times, that we got to have a little deeper conversation, you know, what's, what's going on? Because at the same time he was asking for our financial help, he would pull up to the church in a new truck. I'm like, bro, how much is the truck payment? And then the next time he came in, he was showing off his new ink. He got a new tattoo. Now listen, before you send me a hate email, I'm not mad at your truck. I'm not mad at your new tattoo. But if you can't afford the truck and the tattoo, don't ask the church for help. I'm preaching really, really good this morning, but it's okay. It's fine. No, that's all right. It's all right. It's all right. It, it's, when Jesus asked this guy, do you want to be made well? It's a locator question. It's a, it's a moment of honesty where he's, he's trying to bring him to this to this place. I knew another guy who did not want to get healed because he would have to give up his disability check. True story. <laughs> you see, God is a God of truth. You should know the truth and the truth will make you free or set you free. And sometimes he brings us to the place. The King James, the way the King James says this verse is this, wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou be made whole? It's like Jesus is saying, will you let me heal you? Will you let me set you free? Will you let me deliver you? Here we are seven days into a brand new year, and I know many of us have probably made some resolutions this year. Even if we didn't make it official and tell everybody or post it on Facebook, if we're honest, we've probably all got some things in our lives that we'd like to change. If you've got some places in your lives you'd just like to see some change, just raise your hand this morning. Just raise your hand. Okay, if you're struggling and you don't see any places in your life that need to change, just ask your spouse. <laughs> they will help you. They will help you. 
In fact, if you look at your life and you don't see anywhere you need to grow or anything you need to change, I, I would feel bad for you, right? Because if we're, if we're becoming more and more like Jesus, then we should always be changing. We should always be growing. And so as we look at our lives and we, we start to think, you know, um, hey, I, I notice I, I get angry really quickly. And so in this new year, I'm, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help me deal with this anger. Help me, help me not to be so quick to be angry. And that's an area I'm asking God to help me grow in. Or maybe for some of us, it's, it's those bad financial decisions. And here we are just on the other side of Christmas and the bills are starting to come in. We're watching, you know, how, how much we spent. And, and we realize that stewardship, the way we spend our money is, is really a discipleship issue. It's really a heart issue. And so maybe our prayer this year is, God, would, would you help me, you know, get on a budget? And we help me manage the resources that you've given me well, because when I don't, I realize it just puts so much stress on our family. And God, I know you don't want me stressed out, so I'm asking you to, to help me grow here. I'm sure there are lots of us around the room, I know, that <laughs> we, we say, Lord, I, I need to treat this body better than, than I treat it. And I, I, need to, I need to exercise more. I need to eat better, all that stuff. We, we make those resolutions. Maybe for some of us, it's an addiction we've been dealing with for 38 years, and it's kind. Of, you know, it's time to face this thing. We all have our things. I don't know what your thing is, but we all have our things. But this text just leads us to this question that Jesus asked this guy, and maybe that's the question being asked to us this morning, is do we really want to be made well? Will we allow Jesus to heal us. I think back to John Craig's message from last week, and if you were here, he did a, a fantastic job. He just did a super job. And uh, one of his main points was about pruning, about pruning, and he talked about his grandfather pruning the prune tree, <laughs> and, and that means you cut back the tree, and then the next year it just flourished, and they had this great harvest of, of prunes they were trying to give away to everyone. Here's, here's the deal, church. When we recognize self-inflicted suffering in our lives, it's not our job to prune. It's our job to hold still. Um, our family, you know, we have six children, and of course they're getting older now, but uh, a saying around our house, I can't tell you how many times, maybe I'd be in the other room, and I would hear Patty saying with a strong voice, hold still. <laughs> just, just hold still. And, and when they were little, it might have been trying to get a diaper changed without them squirming all over the bed and making a mess somewhere. Just hold still. And, and then they, they start, you know, getting a little bit bigger. And here we are in uh, rural Garrett County. And, and you might, you know, one of the kids come in from playing outside and have a tick on them. She's trying to get that. Just hold still. Just hold still. Or, or maybe they've got a splinter. And in, in, in my wife, Patty, she, one of her favorite things in the world is to take a needle and dig out a splinter from a poor defenseless child. Just hold still. She just loves, she just loves doing that. Maybe as they get into the teenage years, she starts picking at them. I won't go into too many details, but just hold still. Just hold still. But, but the idea is, is mama is trying to help you. Your job in this moment 
is to hold still. When John was talking last week about God being the God who prunes us, our job is to hold still and surrender. We can't change ourselves. We are powerless to change ourselves. But God is powerful. And therefore, we don't want to belittle his power by resisting what he wants to do in our lives. Listen, there is no lack of his power, but sometimes there is a lack of our surrender. We're just not surrendered. Now, as I read this story, the self-righteous religious part of me could look at this guy's life and maybe make some harsh judgments about this guy. I could do that, except... It's too easy to look at my own life and see a lot of self-inflicted suffering. I won't ask you to raise your hand this morning, but if we were honest, probably all of us would say, I'm doing some things that actually hurt myself. And so as as I look at this story, I can't label this guy as anything because I see myself. I'm the guy. But instead of walking away and hating myself for being this guy, I read this story and I say, how awesome is Jesus? Because Jesus the Christ did nothing by coincidence. He tells us in his word over and over again that he only did what the Father told him to do. And two times, Jesus bypasses hundreds, maybe thousands of people to go looking for this guy. He knew the condition that he was in, not the condition of his legs. He knew the condition of his heart. And still, out of thousands of other people, Jesus chose him. And as I read the story, it just makes me thankful that Jesus pursues the one with the sin condition. Jesus pursues the one who's done some stupid things. Jesus pursues even those who create our own suffering at times. I would have passed up this guy. But I ain't Jesus. (laughs) This story gives us some hope this morning that if Jesus hadn't given up on this guy after 38 years, I guess he has not given up on us either. You know, one of the greatest tools that the enemy uses against us in spiritual warfare is simply discouragement. Discouragement. He, he, he tries to get us to hate ourselves. He accuses us. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren day and night. You don't belong there. You don't fit in. Others can change. The gospel works for them, but it will never work for you. He tries to convince us that we are someone that we're not. There's no hope for you. And I just want you to know this morning that God is a God that pursues us even when we don't pursue him. I would look at this guy. 38 years, I'd be like, bro, if you can't get it right after 38 years, I'm done with you. And Jesus says, oh, no, you're the one that I'm choosing to heal today. As I mentioned to you, my dad went to heaven on Christmas. And, uh, of course, this has caused a lot of, uh, you know, contemplation and looking back over the years and thinking about life and One of my earliest memories as a kid, I think I was probably five or six years old, is on Friday or Saturday night, um, my mom would load us four kids up in the car and we would go bar hopping. I said, Pastor, that seems strange for a five or six year old. I know, I know it was. But we weren't going in the bars. What we were doing is looking for my dad's car. 
And we would find his car, and she would tell one of us kids, she would say, take this tract. Does anyone, does anyone remember what a gospel tract is? A little, a little booklet usually, just a tiny little leaflet thing that would witness the gospel to people. And people used to hand them out to people. And, and she said, here, take this tract, lift up his windshield wiper, and slip this tract under his windshield wiper, put it back down. Maybe when your dad's done at the bar, maybe, maybe he'll see that tract and he'll read it and God will work in his heart. That's, what, that's one of my earliest memories. It, it happened more than one time we would go looking for dad. So we would pray for dad and pray for dad and pray for dad. And I was, was doing some math. So I, I think that was going on when I was about five or six years old. 31 years later, I got to baptize my dad because he had come to faith in Jesus Christ when he was 83 years old. Y'all. God doesn't give up on us. He's good. He's faithful. And so I was reading this story. I'm going to close. Will you stand? So reading this story, I just, my heart went out to maybe somebody who you don't even want to you don't even want to fool yourself this year because like you you've told yourself so many times so many years over and over again I'm going to change this is going to be my year I'm going to get this right and you just you actually get tired of even hearing yourself talk and if that's you my my heart goes out to you this morning and, and brother I'm there with you sister I'm there with you But when we start to give up hope like that, what it tells me is we've actually put our faith in us. We put our faith in some waters. We put our faith in somebody. What we need to do is fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the God who starts a good work in us, and he will complete it, Philippians 1, 6. He's faithful to do that. Here's our job. Hold still. Hold still. Let him do his work. Will you bow your head with me this morning? Father, we don't want to come to you today and make an empty resolution. We've done that so many times. We, we get tired of hearing it, and we assume that you're probably tired of hearing it too. But what we want to do, God, is ask for your help. Help us surrender to the one who does the pruning. Help us surrender to the one who produces the good fruit in our lives. God, we are powerless. You are powerful. God, we are so small. You are so big. We are so weak. You are so strong. We're asking for your strength to be seen in us. For anyone who feels hopeless today, God, would you take the power that's in your word, the power that's in this text today, would you unite it with the teacher, the Holy Spirit, and let this truth come alive in us, God, that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask or think. God, when we surrender to you, you're able to make us whole. Holy Spirit, walk with us this week. Work in us. Mold us, shape us, prune us to be the people you've created us to be. We give you thanks and we give you praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.